Why, hello there, nerds. I'm Ash. And I'm Nat. And you're listening to Crime Time Nerds, a sister podcast. Welcome, nerdlings. It's our favorite time of the week where we talk about some true crime cases. Today, we're talking about an old-timey case from Vermont that has become a huge part of the lore here. But in all actuality, these are actual missing person cases that stem back to the 1940s. Oftentimes, these disappearances are discussed as more of a supernatural piece, but today we're tackling this from a true crime perspective. Yeah, it's it's really interesting to look at these disappearances in a way that isn't tied to just supernatural or just kind of folklore that we have in the community. And and it's instead based more on the, the facts of what actually happened during a, a five-year span back in the 1940s. These are still unsolved cases, but you never know when that one missing piece of information can come back into play. And it could be the one thing that actually solves these cases and gives closure to the families. You know, they had loved ones that they lost. It seemed like they just disappeared into thin air back then. Absolutely. And you folks know I love a good supernatural story. <laughs> but um Oh, same. Same. Yeah. With the with the crime end of this, you just never know when or how that vital piece of the puzzle could just fall into place. So let's get into it. Today we're talking about the five disappearances from a place in Vermont that is known as the Bennington Triangle. We mentioned these very briefly in our Halloween episode, but today we're tackling the actual disappearances of these five missing persons. Our case spans between the years of 1945 and 1950, when five people mysteriously went missing in the same area of Bennington, Vermont, known as the Bennington Triangle. This is somewhat similar to the area in Massachusetts known as the Bridgewater Triangle, which has also seen its fair share of strange occurrences. Some folks believe that this is a coincidence, while some others believe this is a serial killer. And there's also a small percentage of people who actually believe that this is a paranormal occurrence. The area where the disappearances occurred encompasses an area that is an actual Vermont ghost town known as Glastonbury. Glastonbury was once a small town that focused heavily in the logging industry and was located in the Green Mountains of Bennington, known as Glastonbury Mountain. So the northeast side of Glastonbury Mountain drains into Deerlick Brook and then into Glastonbury River, then the Deerfield River, which leads into the Connecticut River, which actually seems to be popping up a lot in our episodes if you remembered Melissa Jenkins, the Connecticut River Valley killer. Yeah, that area seems to have a lot of true crime situations happen. Yeah, and within the mountains is the well-known Long Trail, which is a 272-mile hiking trail that runs the length of Vermont, passes over the Glastonbury Mountain, and this is a section that intersects with the Appalachian Trail. This area of land on the mountain is rumored to have been considered dangerous and negative by local indigenous peoples of that time. And it is thought that because the mountain has four crosswinds, it was a bad omen, and that the indigenous peoples of the area would only go onto the mountain in order to bury their deceased loved ones. And Mm -hmm. one interesting thing of note is that the weather pattern in Glastonbury Mountain is very erratic and can change at moment's notice, and oftentimes plants will grow up at odd angles. 
And if anybody is familiar with New England, this is exactly how the weather is. It could be oh, yeah. sunny one moment and torrential downpour in the next. In the next. What do they say here? There's a saying. It's the, uh, what is it? If you don't like the weather, wait 10 minutes. Yep, that's it. <laughs> yeah. I always get that messed up. I'm like, am I doing it right? But that's pretty much sums it up. So really interesting that it's even more so erratic up at the top of this mountain. Yep. And when Vermont was appointed its statehood in 1791, the area of what would be Glastonbury Town already had roughly 30 people who were settled in that town. And by 1840, Glastonbury had grown to hold 53 people, where they grew various crops encompassing wheat, rye, potatoes, and buckwheat. And they also raised sheep and utilized a favorite Vermont pastime of tapping maple trees to create maple syrup. Glastonbury's location was also one of the things that had its downfall. While it was located in the picturesque Green Mountains, it had the bad luck of also being located in rough high-altitude terrain. It created a short growing season for farmers, it had a rough cold winter, and over a series of events, town folk within Glastonbury realized that they could utilize the natural resources of the mountain to produce much-needed charcoal for those early settlers. This realization gave Glastonbury an ability to create a fairly booming charcoal burning business and help to grow the town and sustain it. This allowed for transport of logs, food, passengers, and charcoal to the neighboring town of Bennington. In the 1880s, the mountains were stripped of all their trees and Glastonbury soon fell victim to the changes within the industrial energy systems. And eventually, the railroad would go out of business, which left Glastonbury with little to no commerce opportunities. By 1920, the town of Glastonbury dwindled down to holding a mere 17 people. And by 1930, that number would only be seven. And in 1937, the town was officially unincorporated and it became the ghost town that it is known as today. This leads us to 1945, the town of Glastonbury has been disbanded and the area is becoming more and more commonly used for hiking and hunting rather than for any formal township. And like many people native to Vermont, Mitty Rivers was a trained outdoorsman. He was an avid fisherman and hunting guide. And on November 12, 1945, 74-year-old Mitty was leading a hunting party into the woods of Glastonbury Mountain. Mitty was guiding a group of four other hunters and starting in Buck Hollow, where he met with a man known as Hollis Armstrong around 4 p.m. on the 12th. Mitty led the party towards a camp known as Lousen's Camp, which was above a location known as Hunter's Rest. Mitty was leading the party up the trail and wasn't far from a large swamp that existed in the area. It is at this time that he disappeared from view from the other hunters and mysteriously vanished on that trail that day on November 12, 1945. Mitty was trained to be in the woods, so many people believed he would have survived without a problem. And when Mitty didn't turn up, 300-plus U.S. Army soldiers were dispatched to comb through the woods for any sign of rivers with no luck. The only tiny piece of evidence found was a rifle cartridge in a stream, and Mitty River's body has never been recovered. I, you know, it's funny. We, I, I know we did talk about this briefly in the Halloween episode, but I actually hadn't realized until we were talking then that Mitty was in his 70s when, I, and I've read this case so many times, and I, for some reason that never clicked with me, 
that he was he was an older gentleman and so uh, when we were talking about that you know a couple months ago I was like wow what that says to me is that maybe something unfortunately happened due to natural causes to Mitty although I would be weird that the hunters didn't find his body immediately but that was one thought I had is that as a 74 year old man there's some natural things that could happen that that maybe maybe say something but Mitty he was a pretty trained outdoorsman, so I don't know. Yeah, I have that same thought. Um, for his age, like, kudos yeah. to him for leading a hunting yeah. party. But yeah, I thought the same thing. That was that was pretty old um, to be out in the terrain leading a hunting party. Right. Um, and I also wonder, since we did mention there was a large swamp, I don't know how mm-hmm. deep they went in with their search parties if they went in the swamp or whatnot yeah. but that could have been the final resting place of many rivers could have been he could have had a heart attack or or something and and maybe yeah something like that happened with his body i i do have to wonder although did it say the oh it was a rifle cartridge though so it'd been fired Ooh, yeah right or maybe it isn't fired i'm not sure i don't know i don't know too i don't much. think it ever specified if somebody knows let us know i'm curious on that but to me, I, I don't know. I kind of think that maybe some natural occurrence may have happened here. Yeah, because, I mean, if he did shoot the gun, I'm sure the others would hear it. So, yeah, yeah, for sure. So the next victim was actually a woman known as Paula Weldon. And she disappeared on December 1st of 1946, which was a mere year after Mitty's disappearance. Paula Jean Weldon was an 18-year-old woman who worked at the Commons at Bennington College here in Vermont. Paula was the oldest of four girls, and her family resided in the nearby state of Connecticut. She was described as pretty at 5'5 and weighing 123 pounds. She was an avid outdoor enthusiast enjoying swimming, biking, skating, hiking, and camping. Basically, she was an everything outdoorsy kind of gal. On the day of December 1st, Paula worked her two shifts at her job in the dining hall, and then she went to her room in the Dewey Hall dorm in order to change her clothes. She then would let her roommate know that she was going to go out for a long hike. Paula had changed into a red parka jacket that had a fur-trimmed hood. She was wearing blue jeans and white sneakers. It was a very mild day for December, and on that day, it was actually roughly about 50 degrees, which explains why she was wearing more fall-like clothing when normally you would be in winter gear at this time of, of year. Paula was seen by several students as she headed down towards Route 67A out towards Bennington. Fellow student Louis Knapp picked Paula up when she was seen walking and brought her as close as he could to her destination, which is about three miles away from the long trail where Paula planned to hike that day. At around 4 p.m. that day, Ernest Whitman and three friends were coming out of a camp in Bickford Hollow where they say that they actually saw Paula She asked them about the length of the trail, and they watched as she headed towards a bridge leading towards that trail start. That was the last time that Paula was seen as she disappeared that fateful day while she went for a walk on the long trail. It wasn't actually until December 2nd, when Paula didn't show up for class, that it was realized that she was missing. At this time, her father came to Vermont in order to help in the search for his missing daughter. It was noted by Paula's roommate that she had seemed really depressed as of late, and this maybe had played a factor in her disappearance. A local taxi driver stated that he had actually taken a student out to the bus station on December 1st, 
but he was unable to identify the student as the missing Paula Weldon. There was yet another witness, a waitress at the modern restaurant out on Pleasant Street, that stated that she had served food to a girl that did actually match Paula's description on that evening of December 1st. The girl purportedly asked the waitress how far it was to Bennington, Vermont, and then asked the waitress where she currently was. The girl said she had arrived in Fall River with about $1,000, but she currently had nothing left of that money. That's a lot of money for 1945. It didn't seem to the waitress that the girl had been drinking, but it did seem as if she was dazed. Searches were carried out over the next few days focusing on the campus, as well as the section of the long trail heading out towards Glastonbury, where Paula had disappeared. It was discovered that many witnesses had sighted a girl matching Paula's description walking over a bridge towards a camp called Hunter's Rest, which I believe is the same one that Mitty Rivers was heading towards. An elderly couple had been on the same trail the day that Paula was hiking. They actually said that they had seen a girl matching her description that took a turn on the trail up ahead of them, which was also the same turn that they then made, and it was almost as if she vanished right before their eyes. She was never seen again. Paula's case struck Vermont very hard with her disappearance. A search was conducted of more than a thousand people, aircrafts, and law enforcement, but no evidence ever surfaced. Paula's father, among many folks impacted by Paula's disappearance, was often stated to have criticized the local authorities and, in his opinion, their lack of sophisticated methodologies that were used in order to investigate Paula's disappearance. It was his criticism that would actually lend itself to the start of the Vermont State Police, which was created only seven months later. Paula's body was never found. Wow. Yeah. This one's sad. It's pretty crazy because there are a lot of witnesses to last seeing Paula. Yeah, Paula had definitely been noticed. It was, it's interesting that the waitress with Paula, what she had to say, that the, the girl seemed dazed. That one I find very interesting because to me, I wonder, what if earlier that day Paula had been on the trail, maybe she fell, hit her head, suffered from a concussion, made her way somehow to that, that restaurant, and maybe that waitress did see Paula, and Paula then had asked the waitress where Beddington was and decided on her own to meander off towards it. And a lot of things can happen to somebody who has a concussion out in the woods on their own. Especially because I think this happened frequently. The night that Paula disappeared, the temperature dropped drastically. So she wasn't dressed for winter. So one thing that could have happened is, is what if she went wandering back into those woods and unfortunately died due to, to exposure? Yeah, I can definitely agree with that after living in Vermont winters. Mm. Um, Those are rough. They are really rough. Um, And not only is just the the snow horrible, the wind is awful as well. It makes it so much colder. Right, and if she was wearing just a little, like, light parka or, you know, that's not going to cut it if that temperature drops to 20 degrees in Vermont. That is not. And snow. Yeah, it's it's just crazy to me that her body had never been found. Yeah, none of these have except, I think, one, which is very interesting. I think that's why it also has led itself to so much folklore over the time. Yeah, yep, definitely. Because, I mean, we're such a small state, and it's hard to believe that a bunch of people went missing in the span of five years, and their bodies were never found besides one, so. Right, yeah. 
for sure. And even people outside of the state have heard this tale, but it's kind of interesting to look at it more for the facts. A lot of the facts of each of these cases, I didn't know. I just knew the lore. Yeah, definitely. I also knew the lore as well, because growing up here, it was the scary Bennington Triangle. Right, right. It's got that that whole history behind it. But yeah, there's a lot more to it. There are missing people here, too. So this brings us to our third disappearance in what is now known as the Bennington Triangle. So exactly three years to the day after Paula's disappearance, it's now December 1st, 1949. 68-year-old James Tedford mysteriously vanished without a trace. This one is bonkers, nerdlings, so find your tin hats, put those things on. <laughs> Definitely. This one. This one's the, the only one I don't have a good explanation for. Yeah, same. James Tedford was last seen boarding a bus after visiting family in St. Albans, Vermont. Several people had seen James sitting on the bus, other passengers and the bus driver included. The driver had stated that he physically saw James in a seat all the way until the stop before Bennington, and he didn't get off the bus. When the bus had pulled into its destination of Bennington, Vermont, James was nowhere to be found. James's luggage and bus timetable pamphlet was still on the bus seat he had been occupying, but James seemingly vanished. James had vanished when the bus was driving down Route 7, which happens to go right through the Bennington Triangle. This one is bananas. I have no good explanation for this. Um, no. Besides the fact that maybe, you know, if if someone says something and you're not really sure and you're like, oh, yeah, that sounds familiar, kind mm-hmm. of like that kind of domino effect within getting witnesses statements. Yeah, I kind of wonder if there was a little bit of like, oh, yeah, I saw him, but maybe they didn't. I, I could get behind that. I would like to think that people just don't magically vanish off of a bus. So... What I think maybe happened is maybe he slipped off the bus at some point when they stopped and no one noticed. And that's where the, maybe the confusion lie. But he is still gone. Yeah, I mean, it is really spooky that he just vanished and left his luggage. And mm. I don't know. Back, I don't know. Back then, your uh, personables were a lot more valuable than they are today. Right. Back then, you couldn't just go to a store and get whatever you needed like you can today. So you kind of need to hold on to the things you have. Right. It is weird, too, that that he he was never seen again. So what happened to him after he got off that bus? So that is weird. That one's weird. Yeah, that one's definitely spooky. Yeah, I don't have a good one for that one. I really want to be skeptical and come up with a good one for that. But I just I don't have a good one. Hit us up and let us know what you folks think on this one, because I don't have a good theory on this. Uh, I don't think Ash does either. So we'd be curious what what you all think happened to to James. Yeah, definitely. Let us know, because the only like I said before, the only thing I can come up with is um, the domino effect with the witness statements. Yeah, that's all I got. That's, that's all I got, too. Not maybe he just slipped away, which now moves us into our fourth disappearance in that five year time span which is the mysterious vanishing of eight-year-old Paul Jepson. On October 12th of 1950, young Paul Jepson disappeared without a trace. Eight-year-old Paul Jepson was last seen playing in his family's pickup truck when his mother had left him alone in order to take care of some pigs that were in the family's care. Search parties were brought in along with bloodhounds in order to search for any trace of the missing boy. 
The dog was on a scent trail when the dog abruptly stopped, bringing many to speculate that the boy may have been abducted by a motorist. Rumors had spread far and wide to the point that some people began to believe that his own parents had actually fed the young boy to their pigs. Which, honestly, what is with all the people and the ridiculous rumor of feeding humans to pigs? Seriously, we've seen this several times now. It, it blows my mind. I, I don't understand this old wives' tale. It's crazy. Yeah, I mean, they say never trust a man with pigs. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard that before you. I, I don't. But honestly, I wouldn't in this situation. But I really don't genuinely believe that that young Paul Jepson, his own parents fed him to, to pigs. I, yeah, I feel I, like that's just yeah. people reaching in air for something that they're not. Yeah, ag- agreed. Agreed. Totally. The young boy's father had actually always believed that perhaps the mountain had lured young Paul Jepson in as he was quoted as saying that Paul quote, talked of nothing else for days, unquote, which this happened prior to his disappearance. Again, Paul's body was also never found. Yeah, these, uh, this just is crazy to me. I just don't understand mm-hmm. how all these bodies haven't been found. I mean, like I said yeah. before, we're a small state. People frequent these areas. I mean, I don't yeah. know how frequent they... That's a pretty popular trail, so... yeah. That is just bonkers to me. It blows my mind that four people in the span of five years missing no sign of their body. No sign of them. It's very strange. And the thing with Paul, I could get behind. I I could, I, I kind of lean towards he may have been abducted, unfortunately, which is really heartbreaking and super sad. But I do think that maybe he had wandered further away and had gotten abducted by somebody. Or even another thought is that he had wandered into the woods and maybe got lost, which is super sad. Yeah, I'm. I'm more on the abduction side with that. Same. Um, because just of the dog. I mean, it was the '50s. These things were happening, and yeah, they were. They weren't widespread in the media, right? And a young boy disappearing. I mean, he was kind of. He was the prime type of target if you were passing by and you see a young boy playing in the the woods or playing in the the yard, and his parents aren't around. If you were a predator, unfortunately, that's, you know, makes makes this young boy a prime target. Yeah, unfortunately, it really, really does. Ugh, that's awful. So that, nerdlings, leads us into our final disappearance with the Bennington Triangle. This took place only two weeks later when 53-year-old Frida Langer went missing. On October 28, 1950, Frida, who was an experienced hiker and survivalist, went missing while she was hiking along the Long Trail on the Somerset area bordering Glastonbury. Like we said, Frida was an avid hiker and was very familiar with this area. She went out hiking with her cousin and was about half a mile in when she had slipped into a stream and had gotten her clothes wet, so she went back to the campsite in order to change her clothes. Frida's husband had been at the campsite tending to his knee that he had hurt previously that day. I had heard both ways. I had heard that her husband was at the campsite. I have also heard that her husband wasn't even in the picture at the time. I've heard both as well. I've seen more that he was at the campsite overall, so that's the one I lean towards. But yeah, I have seen both as well. Frida never made it back to the campsite, and she was never seen again. Search parties, including helicopters from the Connecticut Coast Guard and U.S. Army from Massachusetts, as well as some local aircrafts, were conducted. 
In total, there are over 400 people meticulously searching for Frida, but nothing surfaced. That is, until six months later, when Frida's body was discovered. She was found near the Somerset Reservoir, which happened to be an open area in the wooded trails, and had been searched thoroughly before. This is the only remains that were discovered from those who went missing in the Bennington Triangle. Unfortunately, due to severe decomposition, authorities were unable to determine a cause of death, which only went on to fuel the rumors as to what had happened to her in her final moments. So I know I say this literally every time, but this is crazy to me. Um, The fact that the whole place was searched, Mm -hmm. Frida wasn't found, and then six months later, she's found in the most open area in the wooded trail. That's bananas. Yeah. That, that kind of like, there's like a little, a little tinge of serial killer there, but I just still can't get behind that. <laughs> yeah. You're not a, you're not a supporter of the, the serial killer fan. I actually am on this one, I, on several of these. I, my, my personal opinion on these has always been that I've, I've always suspected there was a killer, a, a serial, potential serial killer in that area, because there are lots of killers that don't have a specific MO. It's more about location or about the the actual ritual. To me, this almost feels a little ritual with the way that it was done. Almost all to a year. Very few of these are outside of that. They're all in the winter months. So I could I could get behind that this was possibly possibly a serial killer. Especially with Frida. Because Frida literally that area, whole area was searched. She was a very experienced outdoors woman. And then for her body to not be found. And then six months later, they find her so badly decomposed and in that same area where they had previously searched. That to me feels like she was placed there. Just my opinion, but. Yeah, that one's hard because, I mean, Frida went missing in October, Mm -hmm. more closer to November. And her, so her, they searched the whole area and then her body wasn't found until six months later. Right. So, the angle that I'm going on with the whole Frida Langer disappearance is that maybe when she was going to the campsite, she fell, something happened, she bumped her head, and mm. she just couldn't find her way back to the campsite. And ah. seeing as this was in October, end of October, early November, mm-hmm. I mean, the search party could have missed her. I don't know how realistic that is, but... Um, could have missed her and then she was lost and then she found her way back to the campsite and then she had succumbed to her I see succumbed to the wilderness or whatever happened if she if she cracked her skull on something and then it snowed so the snow covered her body and not likely people are gonna go and they may not have searched it twice we don't know about that yeah not sure about that but if Okay. I mean, we get a lot of snow now, not as much as we would back Normally. then. Yeah. So it could have the snow could have just blanketed her body, and she had been covered for that's true a good six months. But I don't know. That's just the angle that I'm going with. I just, I don't know how realistic that is, but it might be more realistic than my angle. <laughs> <laughs> I, I won't lie. I I do. I was like, oh, that's a that's a solid solid argument. I have to say, I I do. I could see I could see that being a possibility for sure. I still stand by the the potential killer in this one just because like I said you have a very good logical explanation for that as well. It does seem 
interesting to me that we did have those five disappearances and then they immediately stopped. We saw something similar with the Connecticut River Valley. Of course, that was decades later, but uh, it does remind me of that in that fact that, you know, you had that series of killings over the course of like 10 years and then they just, just they just stop. Yeah, and being the devil's advocate side, um, if this was an opportunistic killer, they have quite a bit of boldness to take Mitty Rivers, right. James, uh, Paul Jepsen, when there are people in sight. I mean... Oh, that's true. That's Paul Jepsen is... Well, there's also Paula as well, but I mean, Paul Jepsen, I don't really put in the category if it was an opportunistic killer. I think it was an op- opportunistic abductor. Um, I think oh, for, for Paul... Yeah. I, I, I kind of... I will agree with you on, on Paul Jepsen. I really think he was maybe kidnapped or wandered off into the woods. I See, I have the opposite on that one. It's similar to your theory on Frida. I wonder if maybe little Paul... With his parents not being around, he'd been telling his dad he wanted to go explore in those mountains and that the mountain was calling to him. What if he decided to go venture out forth and play in the woods, even though, especially at that age, you know, your parents tell you not to do something and you go and do it. And what if he got lost or or hurt and he was never found? I kind of lean more towards that one, but I, I absolutely could see the, the reality of the abduction as well. Yeah, I mean, I can't fight you on that one because I don't have a good uh, <laughs> a good explanation besides the abduction. Yeah, the abduction part to that. But I mean, James, like, I have no idea what to think. I don't about have that a good. One. I really don't. I want to be so skeptical on James, but I really don't have a good explanation for James. The only thing is, like I said, I and I and you and I have said this a couple times on this one, but I do think that maybe maybe some folks weren't quite remembering the situation right away but then of course we run into what happened to him after he got off the bus so that's that's a weird one i'm gonna chalk that one up to tinfoil hat i i really don't have a good good answer i'll give that one to tinfoil hat yeah yeah i i don't have a good answer either because like you said with the whole domino effect witness statements Mm. um what happened to him after that's just what happened to him after yeah i mean he was visiting family in st albans so it's right. not as if he left and never talked to his family again. Uh, right, I mean, that's a good point. That could happen, but I'm sure... I don't know. I, I really wonder what the family thinks about this. I do, too. I, I would be curious. I, you know, I know it was a long time ago, so there's not much left for information on that, you know, other than the lore at this point. But I, I, I am sad that every single one of these families never really got to have a closure on what happened to their, their loved ones. Yeah, it is. It's so awful. And I mean... Living in Vermont, I don't often hear of many news reports of people missing in the mountains specifically. No, um, and we if have they a couple, but a yeah. year, but not any. They're always they're usually found. They're usually found. I mean, we live in a small state, so we definitely hear the reporting of somebody mm. was lost and never found um, yeah. nowadays. Um, like definitely. I said, like I said before, this case did happen in the winter, and Vermont is pretty harsh uh, yeah. if you don't have the proper attire. And being a hiker myself, I know how important it is to bring enough food, water, etc. Um, I actually once came across a man and a dog who almost had to sleep on the mountain due to dehydration to the oh. point where he said he was not thinking clearly and he Ooh. wasn't putting his safety first. And my partner and I were actually the last ones down the mountain. So thank goodness we saw him because my partner saved the day. He actually carried the dog which was at least 65 pounds who had a hurt paw down the mountain 
and we got the hiker water into safety. So it just shows that things can go from zero to a hundred so quick. That's very, very true. And, you know, we did mention these all happened. I think almost all of them were in the winter time or fall to winter months, which in the mountain areas of Vermont means end of October. If you're lucky, you're already got snow up there. Generally speaking, you're talking on average, what, 30 degrees, probably 40 degrees at night. If you're lucky. If you're lucky, yeah. This time of year? Yeah, to 20. On a mountain, probably 20. Yeah, I I don't know. You mean this time of year? Yeah. Yeah. Probably 20 to 30. Yeah, and then if you look deeper in winter, oh my gosh, it's like... Yeah, it's worse. It's way worse. And then you're getting feet of snow, uh, especially because those storms hit at random times. So I I kind of... I I have always got behind the serial killer, but I, I could absolutely... Absolutely. And and what's more realistic is, in fact, just environmental factors. Yeah, because, I mean, like I said before, an opportunistic killer could have definitely had a part in this. I mean, with Frida, yeah, with Frida, I mean, I had the snow blanket in case, but also, I mean, we could have like a weird, freaky serial killer like Ted Bundy, who kills his victims, saves them in the woods for a while, goes back to them, and then gets rid of the evidence but I mean in this case it could have been the fact they took Frida somewhere killed her kept her in a certain area maybe had some guilt about it so that after six months when her body was decomposing they brought her back to the open area to be found just yikes yeah I, 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 so here's where I stand on this. I lean more towards the non-supernatural myself. I think it's definitely more likely environmental combination of killer. Could be a couple murders in there. Or in situational. I don't necessarily lend it. The, my, I personally, as while I do enjoy a good supernatural theory, I don't honestly think that's what the case was for any of these. I think, unfortunately, these are cases of missing people who were maybe lost in the woods or got hurt. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, if we wanted to throw out some supernatural theories, um, we've mentioned some in our Halloween episode before. Mm. But I mean, some people are believing that Bigfoot is out there. And I mean, while I love a good Bigfoot story, and I know you do too, Nat. Yeah. um, I don't have the evidence to prove that one. No, I don't think this is Bigfoot or the (laughs) monkey man. But, I mean, according to some people, there is such a thing as a Bennington monster, which is much like Bigfoot. And there's also theories of a story called the the Man of Glatsbury, who lives in a cave and was known to prowl the area. Ooh, okay, that sounds scary. That sounds like creepy killer type of things. Yeah, and I mean, like we mentioned before, in Massachusetts, the Bridgewater Triangle, there's also the Bermuda Triangle, which is the mm. mother of all of them. Absolutely. Um, there are similarities, strange disappearances in all of those. They all share that. So, yeah. I mean, I, I do absolutely see that that correlation. I don't know if there's more than abnormal amounts. Probably in Glastonbury, there is more than abnormal amounts of disappearances because that was over a five-year span. But generally speaking, I, I don't know if that's more like astronomically more than average. But those areas do share that similarity. Yeah, definitely. And we would love to hear if you nerdlings have any theories or... Yeah. Whatever. Cheryl. We'd love to hear from you. Definitely. It's one of those things we'd be curious what, what you all think, too. So hit us up and let us know. And with that, nerdlings, that concludes 
The Strange Disappearances of the Bennington Triangle. If you liked this episode, or any of our others, please hit that subscribe button, and feel free to leave us a review on iTunes or your preferred podcast subscriber. You can also hit us up on our Instagram, at CrimeTimeNerds, or check out our case notes at CrimeTimeNerds.com, where we post references and photos of all of our cases. We also have a Twitter account, which is at CrimeTimeNerds, and an email you can reach us at, which is CrimeTimeNerds at gmail.com. We will catch you next time, you crime-loving nerdlings.